When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome back to Realistic Sustainability. I'm Mike, and I am here with a very tired Nick. Good morning! <laughs> he started it with a yawn. Yes, we are yet again having trouble getting our schedules together and sitting here early, early in the morning to record a show. That's fairly accurate. Now, I am not going to lie. I didn't get to bed last night till well after 1 o'clock. I didn't get home till well after 12. And then when I woke up this morning at 5.30, I told my body, I was like, not today, Satan. But I knew, I knew in my heart that if I laid back down, I was never going to be here. Well, I appreciate you being here because this, this show is much more challenging when it's just me talking to myself. You you know, maybe try talking into a mirror. It might help. And hey, you know what you could do is you could like, okay, so sit in the same place, talk into a mirror. Okay, so get an idea as to where you're going to be in that mirror and then put like a mustache on the mirror and a hat. So it's like you're talking to someone else. Or I, I mean, I could just put up a picture or something. Yeah, you could. It's way less creative, but okay. <laughs> Anyways, I appreciate you being here this morning and getting up this early with me. So before we start. Did you see the picture of Jameson's sunflower? I put that on greening, and boy, had it taken off. Did I see it? I have shared it, and I have shown it to so many people. <laughs> yes, we'll just keep it short. Yes, I've seen it, but I, I don't know if you can really constitute that as one sunflower. It's like a bunch of sunflowers all growing together. Well, it's one plant. It is one main stalk. When it was at its healthiest... She counted over 40 flowers on that one plant. That's pretty impressive, especially no, for something you didn't plan on growing. No, and, and the funny story for everybody on that is that it was it looked like a plant growing in my garden, so I didn't pull it. I waited for it to get a little more mature, and Jameson loves planting sunflowers. She's got them all over the place. So I used this app on my phone to take a picture of the leaf, and it told me it was a sunflower. So I decided, eh. How's it going to hurt if I just let it grow there? She likes sunflowers, and obviously I've got room in the garden. Well, yeah, and but we know how friendly you are with the bees, so, I mean, what's wrong with a little extra meal for them? Right. So we left it in there thinking, oh, we're going to get this one big sunflower. And what I, I honestly believe is a sunflower tree has now grown in my garden to the point where the the actual stem or stalk at this point is probably six, seven inches in wow. diameter. I won't be able to wood chip it. Well, I mean, th this is where I would like to, I wish I was the one telling the story because I would add a really cool phrase, like little did we know and stuff like that, because ultimately you're right. Like you expected oh, one sunflower. You're not also not really telling people how big this thing is. You might've said there's 40 flowers. I'm like, how tall is your sunflower? Well, we have not measured it, but it's easily more than two Jamesons. We took a picture with her within front of it. That is definitely a unit of measurement in our family. But for those of us not listening, she's about five foot two. <laughs> right? So it's, it's somewhere between, you know, 10 and 14 feet tall. Now, okay. So next question. 
Is she is it growing in a uh, one of your planters? It is in my raised bed garden, and yes. they are what about three feet off the ground? Well, they are, but the dirt on the inside is much lower, so it's about a foot to about a foot off the ground, maybe a foot and a half. So it's a, it's a solid twelve foot plant. I mean, it's it's impressive. It kind of makes you think that it's like from a movie, like it's going to spawn an alien that's going to take over. I seen it, and I was like, oh my gosh. It's one of the sunflowers that's going to fight the zombies, like the video game. Oh, oh man, plants versus zombies. There we go. I'm impressed you even know what that is. Yes. I have kids. Does it provide sunlight for your household? Does it, does it like randomly just give you energy? <laughs> no, not at all. No, the, it needs to work harder. So this week, at what I wanted to talk about, and, and it's kind of an off topic, but it is how there's a connection between climate and disease. Because there's there's a lot of debates going around right now about, well, you know, we live in a COVID world. So right now, viruses are top of topic. And <laughs> yes, I know. And uh, there's even been politicians in the past taking climate and, you know, and, and tying other things to it. So the concept of climate being tied to things like disease or war is not new. And I thought it's a good opportunity to discuss that. It's a good opportunity to piss me off early in the morning. Excellent, Michael. Excellent. I get you started. I mean, it's it keeps you awake. It makes you motivated. Oh, you're going to burn me out before 8 o'clock. <laughs> no, but all I mean by saying what I probably shouldn't have said is that it's a talking point where they, they use to pivot their their actual agenda from or what they, they want us to believe their agenda is from. So, like, yeah, it's no secret that climate or so the changing of climate is linked to disease because when you're you know we're in michigan our seasons change every day but when our seasons change it kind of molly wops your um your immune system for a minute and anything your body might have been fighting could get a step up and you could actually get a, a spring cold or a summer cold that's why there's a flu season not all bacteria and viruses thrive in the same temperature in the same climate so with that being said, it's just kind of simple, stupid that as the weather changes and it gets warmer or hotter, some things are just going to do better than others. And I say that because, you know, the U.S. is a pretty big country and, and there's all different climates throughout the entire country. So you're going to have different outbreaks of different diseases at different times in different places because it can't all survive in the same temperature. Let me clarify when I say politicians, because the moment you say that you just tense up, but. Not the propaganda side, not the this is my team side, how it has been brought up in the past almost nonchalantly as connections to different things and then mocked and fought over and all those, all that kind of stuff. But the first thing we have to do, and I think we're kind of preaching to the choir when we, when we clarify some of these things on this show, is the difference between climate and weather, because I think that just needs to be defined early. Because as we talked about politicians doing silly, silly things, that's how you end up with a guy with a snowball going, what do you mean it's getting warmer? I'm holding snow. So go ahead. Yeah, that, that's accurate. And I would like to clarify that when you when, when we use the term climate and, and what I had just said is more like a like weather it is what I would it is a temporary climate change. It's not really a climate per se, as it is seasonal allergies and stuff like that. Well, the weather is our day-to-day -day experience, uh, and usually weather is measured in weeks, 10-day periods, things of that nature. 
where climate is measured in 30-year chunks. Just for anybody's information, if you're listening to someone talk about climate and they show you anything less than 20 years, they are manipulating a, a study somewhere. Studies are usually 20 to 30 year data sets. We've seen it before. Again, politicians with a seven year set trying to find a cycle that fits their need. But it's usually 20 to 30 year data sets to count as a climate study. So when we talk about this, we're talking about long-term trends, not what it was last week or last month. Again, when we, we use the term climate change because global warming felt misleading, although it is exactly what's happening. The net energy of the planet is rising. So overall, the temperature of the planet is rising. So global warming or climate change, they're both valid, and that's what is happening. So credit to what Nick was saying, is if you change the climate in an area, some things thrive where they couldn't before. Places here, even in Michigan, if you have a warmer climate than what is what is usually here, you almost immediately within a couple of years start seeing small differences in the, the wildlife and insects. And if, if you start to look at that over 20 and 30 years, it makes a dramatic change of what can live and what can't. It's um, I'm gonna be I'm gonna sound a little paranoid here, but it kind of it kind of intimidates me because as as the planet heats up and more of glaciers and stuff like that are melting, there there is an untold amount of scientific discoveries waiting to be you know discovered, and that that's a wonderful thing. But with the good comes the bad, and there is always the possibility that they could find new bacteria, and there could be new viruses that that are ancient. That are that have survived all this time, frozen in dead animals and stuff like that, in these ice caps, and and that actually uh, kind of freaks me out when I think about it. I know I sound like this Armageddon end of the world scenario thing, but it just you never know what you're gonna find, and and we really short of doing you know seismic scans and stuff like that, there really isn't a whole lot of information of what's frozen under there as far as you know extinct species and stuff like that. So. The climate changing will have a big effect on how our world moves forward. Well, and I, I didn't prepare much of that, but I do know that that's already been a topic of conversation is that as we lose layers and layers of ice, you start bringing back. Remember, that water was trapped millions of years ago mm -hmm. and everything in that water was trapped with it. So as this stuff starts to off gas, as it starts to fall into the ocean, you can get you know you you kind of say new viruses but it's new to us uh yeah. like a, like a the new to you virus can be released and that is still a problem it's not what i've prepared today but you're absolutely correct and that is something that that is out front and open in the world of science well, yeah, and, and one of the things that a lot of people probably don't think about, obviously the people who are in the that forefront of that, you know, that endeavor have on their mind, but one of the most fortunate things about studying like paleontology is that everything is buried pretty much under the earth and it's it's fossilized and you're not going to find a whole lot of usable like organic material. You're not going to find any skin or flesh or stuff like that. I only say that because when the ice melts and you start finding these mammoths that are thousands of years old and they're completely intact because they've been frozen, as they thought, if there is a, a bacteria or a virus that is there, that, that body, that, that, that piece of flesh becomes a living cesspool. It, as it thaws, it just becomes food for whatever's there. And that 
is a breeding ground for infection and it's and that's not something that's new to us i mean that's no different than if some an animal dies in the forest and next you know it's got maggots and all different kinds of stuff on it that's nature that's what nature does but this is ancient nature this is stuff that a lot of it is like it or not is like cryptozoology and cryptopaleontology a lot of it is really just theory because there's no we don't have a time machine you know we haven't found our flux capacitor yet no one's built a delorean um get on that michael but mm-hmm. it it could be Pandora's box if we're not careful. And now that well, that's being said, I'm not going to talk about it much more. The biggest thing is that we're not we have not been exposed to certain things, and that can be that that it's not always a bad thing, but it tends to be. So as new new to us viruses and and such appear, we will have some struggles dealing with them. You're trying to tell me that people fear what they don't understand, aren't you? Oh, I'm trying not to. <laughs> <laughs> so the very first study I took a look at was a 2019 Sanford study, and they spent a lot of time showing warming regions and how that equated to a ton more mosquitoes. Yeah, that makes sense. What and, regions are we talking about? Well, and what they were what they were looking at was northern Africa. How as the as this climate warms, even the cooler regions become hot, allowing the breeding cycles to be much much longer. And when you have mosquitoes, which are a main carrier of disease on that continent and in many in, in many areas. The increase in malaria, uh, what was it, dengue fever? What What's the word I'm looking for there? Uh, I'm not sure. There's a, a lot of diseases they carry, Mike. We got to be but a more West specific. Nile, it, there's, there was a ton of different things that mosquitoes carry. And with that changing climate and the increase, it showed almost a 40% growth and mosquito populations, and almost a linear growth in illness. That makes sense, though, because that countries, and I guess I shouldn't call I shouldn't call Africa a country. But I, I, I'm sorry for saying that. Continents with countries in it that are like Africa, they lack the necessary infrastructure, and I will call it infrastructure sets of systems in place to to battle that type of i i can't call it infestation because you know it is a naturally occurring insect but like here especially when the wet season starts we have trucks that are drive down streets and and they're spraying for mosquitoes constantly trying to keep those numbers in check and granted there's going to be like plot like plots of land that are going to be wet and almost like swampish marshland if you will we have a lot of it in michigan so there's always going to be those opportunities for those bugs to you know repopulate but I don't think they have the amount of tools necessary to battle the population like we do. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, if someone's listening to this, if I'm wrong, let me know. The, the Sanford study really pushed the connection between climate and disease because this middle piece, that increase in mosquitoes, that increase in quote-unquote pest that can spread that disease much easier. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the first times I really got into understanding because I hear all the time all the different connections between climate change, and then you always hear everybody mock each other over it. But this is a reality. As it warms, you're opening regions. And as you as it warms longer, those regions for those species stays open longer, and more and more people get bit. 
mosquitoes are already considered one of the most dangerous creatures on the planet to begin with because of how they carry disease. Now we're just opening the window of how how many and how often they can be around. Yeah, and, and something a lot of people don't really consider are those middle pieces. They don't they don't take into account that. So this is what we're scared of, and this is what we're trying to do to prevent it. But the middle pieces are you know the cogs and the wheel, however you want to look at this, are really what they need to focus on. Like mosquitoes are terrible, but I never would have considered them in terms of disease. When you were talking about disease, I was I was thinking bacteria and things that are like that don't do well in the warmth, and I never even considered insects. Like that's that's brilliant. And the more I read and the more I saw, the more unique the, well, unique to me, because I didn't know the concepts were. In 2014, Columbia did a study showing that food scarcity leads to disease and that climate change is creating food scarcity on some continents. And what that does is it leads individuals to eating more of what they called bush meat, yeah. more, more bats more monkeys, things that aren't necessarily considered a normal meat because of the scarcity. People are reaching further and further for this food. And what you saw was like they took chunks in Africa again, where Ebola went up 50% because it was coming from bushmeat. That makes sense. But also, once again, uh, these are food sources that aren't, aren't regulated and haven't really been studied as to how to even tell if it's something is edible not you know i'm sure there are bats that are edible and monkeys and whatever else you want to eat we're humans i'm sure if it's alive we have found a way to consume it but there's a lot you can do in terms of research and and i guess for lack of a better phrase homework to really kind of get an idea as to what you should eat or when you shouldn't eat something i have never been in a situation and nor do i think i ever will be we live a very 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 comfortable first world life here where i think i'm gonna have to experience that i have to be reminded on a regular basis that that's not the way it is for the whole world we have it very good here well and as we kill the forest in one area and create scarcity in another area we push living nature creating this issue you have 75 mm percent -hmm. of new emerging or re-emerging disease has originated from animals or a zoonic source. AIDS, SARS, H5N1, H1N1, a bunch of those. All of these things come from or have been traced back to bushmeat. So as you create these problems with climate and you put these stresses on society, even though it's not necessarily our society right now, that is where the disease comes from. And it spreads. And it, and it can become our problem. It, you're very right. It can become our problem. And you're also right about there are a lot of these these really potent diseases that we've had to deal with over the years have started like that. I think it's fair to to note, though, that the most diseases that are, I'm going to say, lethal to humans or really hard for our, for our bodies to fend off generally do come from an animal. Normally, they jump to animals that are close to our our you know, biology before they jump to us. Not always, but it does happen. And when I say close, I'm not talking about orangutans or, or chimpanzees. There are lots of animals that are on a biological level are surprisingly close to us that you would never, ever consider that kind of stuff. It gets kind of freaky, man. Like think about like, so you know, we dealt with COVID, you know, they start, they, they think that started from a bat. 
Uh, and, and coronavirus has existed in animals for years. I mean, they've had medications for dogs and stuff for the coronavirus for decades. It's not like it's new. It was just new to us. And normally when I say new to us, I like talking about like video games and use clothes and cars, not, I don't know, death bacteria and horrible sickness and disease. But it's uh, it's something that the world needs to pay closer attention to because in, and COVID was a, a great awakening to that exactly because that came out of nowhere and hit us like a ton of bricks. We weren't ready for it. And if, if anything, it showed a number of ways that as a whole, the world just failed. We all screwed up. None of us did what we were supposed to do because we didn't know what we were supposed to do because any type of planning that we had was either improperly done, improperly thought, or just not done enough. Well, and let me clarify something real quick, because I said it can be our problem. It should be our problem, even if it happens in other nations, if it happens on other continents, not just because it can get to us, it's because it's still there and we're all human. So when I said that, it may have almost sounded insensitive. And I, I realized that after I said it, it is something that we should all be worried about and cognizant of and working uh, to solve uh, every conspiracy theorist in the world likes to pick on bill gates but that man spends a tremendous amount of time effort income everything in africa to prevent these diseases knowing that it it can be a hub to the world and that is that is something that the world needs to recognize and help that continent take care of its people well yeah because race and gender and, and ethnic heritage really is irrelevant. We're all human. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is whether you live in Michigan or you live in some little town in Italy or you live in a city over in Russia, it doesn't matter. You're still a human. Your body works the same way. You still have a heart that pumps blood, lungs that oxygenate the blood. So any disease that, that could happen in any country, any continent in the world, has the potential to reach you, whether you like it or not. And even if it doesn't, just for the, the sake of humanity, like if you can do something to help fight that or to help kind of lessen the effect of it on the people it's afflicting, then I think it's it's kind of a it's a duty as, as a member of the human race to do what we can. Based on this Columbia study in 2014, they're alluding to what may have happened with COVID. This is a glimpse into the future for, on this study, talking about the transmittal of those viruses from bushmeat being able to grow within a human. And mm -hmm. that is still, I mean, scrape all the conspiracies aside, still the primary likely source is from bushmeat. And here we are with the world changed, because I'm not going to say changing, because it has officially changed based on what this Columbia study kind of predicted it, it didn't even stop with food because water became a major issue as fresh water becomes more and more scarce they talk about stagnant water they talk about insect infected water larva infected water creating diarrhea and other illnesses to people so it's not even just the food but also water everything a person needs in life as climate change continues to evolve it is it becomes more and more dangerous for those who have scarcity all around them. Well, you're right, and and I, I want to note that when it comes to to anything you ingest, whether it be food or water, it isn't really relevant in the notion to even say that it's food or water. Only to say that anything you ingest is subject to risk in that regard. You're talking about stagnant water, stagnant water is disgusting. Like it, it's weird to say that water can be rotten, but like literally. I had a storage tote outside 
of my house sitting under my eaves trough collecting rain for the chickens and well we had plenty of water so i hadn't emptied it in a few weeks and i went out there just the other day and i can't even fathom a number of how many mosquito larvae are in there i dumped it out so i guess you can call me a murderer but there was probably i mean there there were so many that you couldn't like if every place you looked there was more than you could count. Like they were everywhere. And that's the kind of stuff where just stagnant water, stagnant bodies of water. I know that and I know that there are dry seasons over it in some of those those continents and countries that that when like watering holes and stuff don't get any rotation. I guess you can call it rotation. I really don't know how to how to word that. I, I, I this is kind of territory that I'm not really familiar with, but I understand the notion of stagnant water, just like it just like, you know, rotten food. You know, and it's also though in our in our country specifically when you go to school to get like certified for sanitation even for a small certificate or or like even something as simple as like serve safe for food there's a number of diseases that that you have to learn about because there is no quick fix there are things that can happen in your restaurant that bleach can't kill as scary as that is there are things like the norovirus there are things like c diff there are things like you know, Ebola. And there are lots of these things that, that do exist in the world. And even in, in countries as privileged as ours, they, they do affect us. So it all starts with, I mean, paying attention to your climate and what's going on with your food source, your water source. Like, that's one of the areas I, that if nowhere else that, that like correct and efficient science, proper science can benefit the world. When you think of climate, you think of floods. You think mm-hmm. of hurricanes, you, you know, this crazy weather. That's where they were discussing a lot of the, the, the waterborne disease. Think about Katrina. That was a, a large hurricane that devastated New Orleans and the surrounding area. That water st- sat there for a long time before it could recede. Yeah, and you're right. And, and that's, a, that's a special, actually, that's a perfect example because that's a special kind of special topic. The way that cemeteries are done in louisiana is a little different than the rest of what we're used to and so when you have the levees breaking and you have all these areas getting flooded there is a lot of that water that was very 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 bad for you the best way to put it is there's a lot of dead bodies floating around i don't know how else to say that but the water was contaminated but also something that is is probably not as big of a threat but i'm going to i'm going to note that occurred to me when you said that think about these huge storms and and the amount of flooding it causes and think about the amount of tropical animals that are pushed inland that aren't normally there and, and all they're going to do is die they're not going to survive they're going to die well as they die they've got different bacteria different things that the surrounding area surrounding water isn't isn't normal with and it could be something as stupid as, as a puffer fish leaking toxin and poison into the water regardless of what it is it's a hazard and something that needs to be paid attention to well and you're taking a lot of times a contaminated source from one place and spreading it to a clean source in another place. But even after everything is cleaned up and everybody's back to fishing and life is normal again, they don't realize that that bacteria or those viruses or whatever it is has moved from source to source and now live within this fresh water supply. Well, yeah, because it only takes a few parts per million to affect your body. Water is what we need to survive. Without water, we can't go but a couple of days. So when you drink a glass of water, that's one of the few things that all of it gets used in your body. Your body, if it's clean water, puts it right to work and it doesn't get wasted. So if you drink, you know, 
water out of your tap, but that that comes out of a reservoir that has like sewage or has something in it doesn't take but a few parts per million to really mess your body up. Well, there was also a study that Nature posted and under the Nature Sustainability section that talked about the the rising food needs because of growing populations. They talked about the the inc- the, the massive jump in antibiotic use not just in humans but in animals because we need to grow more food and when they were talking about the food they were talking about your favorite industry the meat industry yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna tread lightly on this topic that we're shrinking the window of usability creating not only a food scarcity concern with the animals but it's also creating this we won't have antibiotics for ourselves Okay, so you're right. I'm going to try really hard not to go on a rant about about this industry. Unfortunately, everything about our food culture here is wrong. Even, you know, like the idea of like we have to have meat with every meal, which is totally backwards. And when you go into the grocery store, if there's not much of one thing, just buy something else. I don't think personally, knowing how meat is aged and how it's stored, I don't think there's ever actually going to be a shortage. As long as we are breeding cattle the way we are breeding it, there is meat for a very long time. It's one of the things where like they do it with gas all the time where they say there's a shortage and there's really not. They just, it's, it's a marketing ploy to make you buy because they think their supply is in danger or they're not able to produce for it's It's a minute window. It'll be like one month that the supply doesn't, you know, meet the demand, but they have enough stocked up for months and months and months of supply. So it's not, or I'm sorry, months and months and months of demand. So it's, it's a little ridiculous in the way they do this kind of stuff. Now, I do agree that the reason that they pump these animals full of um, antibiotics is ridiculous. I also think that the way they crossbreed them to come up with these these crossbreeds that, that grow super fast is ridiculous. And I do want to stop talking about this now because I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get <laughs> okay. fired up. Well, and we stress that industry out by wasting 40% of all the food that's produced. Now they have to produce more meat and they have to give more antibiotics to, to have this meat be fresh well as the as the critters inside the critters start living through the antibiotics it starts creating crossover viruses and diseases yeah super diseases super viruses it does happen right and it's no different than and you're a perfect person i'm gonna use as an example for this you unlike the rest of us your body builds an immunity to everything after like a day so even deodorant, like you, your body is constantly fighting anything it doesn't believe it needs to have in it. And that's what our bodies are meant to do. We're meant to build tolerances, which are fine for us, but that leads to stronger diseases. Animals' bodies are no different. I mean, a cow isn't any different. It has, it has an immune system. It fights off disease. Yeah. So when you're pumping it full of antibiotics, all you're doing is ma- you're, you're essentially making a training regimen for stronger diseases. I know that sounds ridiculous, but you really are. So that's what that report was showing was that this trend that we have is only encouraging more and more dangerous diseases and viruses. I like how you're using trend instead of the words terrible culture. It is. And I think we've I think we've discussed that before. We have a broken system in the United States when it comes to our food. And that, and that's why I always have to throw in there that this system is being stressed because we throw away almost half of it. We don't even eat almost half of it. 40% of all food produced through these systems just ends up in the trash. 
never even consumed. That is why we have a system that is growing almost half more than what they need, pumping them full of antibiotics, trying to make them bigger and bigger and bigger to produce more and more meat when we just throw it away anyways. They still get it bought. It's still a, you know, a financial gain for the farmer, but it's us. We're making that mistake. We feel yep. like in, a, in, a, in the United States that we have to have a 20-ounce steak and eat 10 ounces of it. Well, it's I don't even think that it's it's that we feel like we have to have it. Well, we, what the real problem is, is we, we expect to have it whenever we want it at that moment's notice. I don't think there's anything wrong with eating a 20-ounce steak once in a very great while, but I do think there's something wrong with going into a grocery store and having whatever you want at your fingertips all the time. I think that whole design is flawed and is very anti-nature because there's a reason why things are seasonal. There's a reason why you have life cycles for animals. There's, I mean, there's a lot of things that we just do backwards. We found cheap ways around because we didn't like actually having to be patient. It's starting to kind of stick its ugly head up at me again because as as the garden season ends here in Michigan, my yields are becoming less and less and less. And I have to start preparing for that that winter. Because remember, I am trying to reduce the meats. But when you, it seems like every time you go get food, you come back with meats. So I'm trying to, it's going to be more trips to Horrocks, I think. Mm-hmm. And better planned meals. And I will say, pridefully, in not just from you, not just from listeners, but even Jameson has pushed and pushed and pushed. Most of the time now when I make a meal, there is not massive leftovers. I'm slowly getting better at gauging how much to make. I think that for your for your family's economy and for your health, I think that's the, probably for the best. And don't get me wrong, like if you're a family that has leftovers, that's great. Eat them. I mean, don't just stick them in the fridge and throw them away. Don't don't contribute to that 40% of waste. But you really should just cook for what you're going to use. If there's only five of you there, then make five portions. If maybe make six portions. I mean, it's it's not something that, it's not like an exact science. Every family's different, you know. If you're the kind of person who, you know, you make dinner for yourself and then enough for you and your hus- husband to take the lunch to work the next day, great, do that. Just don't make 15 portions when you need eight. I mean, this isn't like a Sunday brunch after church. Well, and that's, I was going to make the joke about our sister wanting our morning, well, it can't be morning. Jamie hates morning. So brunch breakfast like I used to make, or she calls it the continental breakfast where I make a ton of food. You do make excessive amounts of food when you do that. Well, and I've always done that because it was open door. Anybody can come in. It doesn't matter who it is. You know, they can come in and have a breakfast. And sometimes we'd have you know, 15, 20 people at the house. So I, I haven't done it in a long time, but it's all pre-COVID. <laughs> so she has been starting to bark about wanting to see that again. I think breakfast foods are one of the things where people just make copious amounts of because they're so cheap and, and they're not filling. Obviously, I say that knowing that people are going to be like, eggs are filling because protein is filling. But but like pancakes and French toast and toast, it's not filling. And that's the things that like you, you never, ever know how to make because it, it, maybe families are different than mine. But my family, we could eat, we can make French toast, each eat like five pieces one time. And the next time we make it, we each eat one. Like it's just, it's so hit and miss. And so we make, we make like, oh, three loaves of bread. Like, like it's a ton of it. And we'll eat it. Until we're bursting, and then we'll a lot of times the rest just goes to the chickens. Once in a great while, if we use real nice bed, we'll freeze it, and the kids will drop it in the toaster the next morning for breakfast. But like 
which is a really great way for pancakes and for French toast. Anyone that, that does have a bunch of extra, you can freeze them. And instead of like microwave them, just drop in your toaster the next day. I mean, they, they work out great for like before school and stuff like that. If you're a meal prepper, meal planner, that's a great way to make breakfast for your kids throughout the week. So you don't have to get up and destroy your kitchen every day. Sounds good to me. I, I feel like our kitchen is destroyed every day, but eh, yeah, you have, you, have, you have a family of five. It is. Yeah. So the point that the nature article, I'm sorry, research was trying to point out was more death equals more disease. And that it doesn't matter if it's a disaster or if it's a war. No one is running around cleaning up during the process. It's always an after series. And 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 if you wait any marketable period of time, disease has its opportunity. It it only needs a few hours. It really does. And so I flash back to, I think it was 2015, 2016, where Bernie was talking about climate change leading to war and everybody was making jokes about, oh, the weather's going to change. Let's go to war. That was also as in the research. War and conflict always leads to disease and scarcity for nations always leads to war. If you're short on food, if you're short on water, if you're short on resources in an economic state, then it can lead to war. That we've seen wars over oil. There's been a laundry list, diamonds. It, really, what the war is on is irrelevant, considering how we fight war is to take someone else's resources. And so war, even not even talking about the death aspect of it, that's kind of a, a byproduct. The notion that like we win wars by removing the ability to access resources by the other side. So when you do that, you create that scarcity. You you automatically create the problem that you know we're talking about. And then the death, the death just ha- I mean, the death is a byproduct of war. It's a terrible thing. War itself is is a huge failure of diplomacy. It's a huge tragedy, and it should never ever ever happen. But when there's war, there is death, and and so. It, it should be noted that your bodies are full of bacteria. So when there's death, there's going to be that, that kind of stuff is going to happen. But the scarcities of um, resources is almost what I feel to be a bigger crime because it's just if you don't want disease, if you don't want hardship for your people, then you can't really do that. It's just going to happen. It's, it's just, I just ah, it's going to get me all fired up. It's disgusting. Well, and you also have nations in de- in developing areas that have not invested in the resources and strengthening their food network or their water network. And when scarcity hits them, they don't have that in place. What they do have is an army. Yeah. And so sometimes looking at your options when, when, during at, or after poor planning, there's nations that think I can just take it from my neighbor. And that leads to the, these conflicts based on the, the scarcity created by climate change. Because you're mm-hmm. right, there is a scarcity created in tactics. But a lot of times we're now seeing wars that are starting because of the general scarcity of things because of climate. So then they emphasize or, or they push on that bruise by creating more scarcity of, of whoever they're fighting. And either way, the only people who suffer are the residents, the people from those countries, the ones involved, the ones who are just trying to go to work that day. We were camping this weekend and we have a lot of kids and the friends and family group who are war buffs. And as interesting as history is to me, it's always a tone problem. When someone cheerfully tells me about a war, I get upset because to me, every moment in history of war is an emphasis on human failure. 
come see how dumb we were. It belongs in a museum where people can see it. You can study it. You can even you can even be a history buff. But let's not show the joy of mass destruction. The last piece was talking about how just temperature increases, humidity increases, lead to a lot of stroke and other heart-related illnesses. Mm-hmm. And this is global. There, no one gets away from this one. We all, I think I've mentioned before, my mom ha- can't be in humidity. It's just, it stresses her heart out too much. People get to a point where they can't deal with that heat or humidity. I'm not a fan of it. I can deal with it. I don't like it. But there are some people out there who just can't even deal with it, that it becomes an emergency. So now you tack on rising temperatures, rising humidity, with our inability to keep our grid functional all the time. Mm-hmm. And you have and you have a recipe for human death. Look at you being the the, the bringer of joy, Michael. <laughs> no, it's it's on the notes. It may be on the notes, but you're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. And and I think that is something that is kind of overlooked, I guess. There's a a great amount of people that when they get to their, their golden years, they tend to move south where it's warmer. Now, I have never understood the correlation and people that, that get to be senior citizens, because a lot of them just can't handle the humidity, but they go to Florida. Right. Because I'm with you. Humidity sucks. I hate it. No one likes to sweat. Unless you're, I mean, unless you're weird, I hate sweating. I do have friends who really enjoy that kind of climate. I do. My old boss, that man will send me pictures of the temperature gauge of, you know, showing 110 with high humidity and he is a happy person. I, on the other hand, am not. Send me the... (laughs) Send me to Minnesota. Back then, we used to travel for work. We would, hey, we've got a call for Vegas. I'm like, bye. You give me Pemidji, Minnesota, and I will go up there in the winter at negative 10 degrees and go take care of this problem. Do not send me someplace where it's scorchingly hot. You know, come to think of it, I feel the same way. I hate sweating. I hate humidity, but I love cold air. That's what we have for today. And what I really want to remind people is, as we talk about some of these bigger global problems, all it is is a justification of the small actions we do every day. We, there's not a lot we can do about climate change. There's not a lot we can do about changing how the food industry functions, except for changing our actions except for helping educate those around us in a kind, gentle, and positive way, so that the point that maybe they watch your example and make that change themselves. It never works. Let me repeat that. It never works to yell at someone for their actions. They will always pound the stake in the ground and defend what they've done. If we just continue to function in a positive way, make good choices, and continuously be seen doing them, you can weather the storm of the the periodic mockings or jokes. Over time, people will realize what you are doing is what needs to be done. So keep that in mind. I understand episodes like this can make you feel sad, but understand that just the idea that we know what is happening can lead to positive results. So if we trim down that meat consumption, we're helping fix that antibiotic problem. So that's all we had for this week. If you'd liked this episode, please share it on social media or share it with a friend. I'm actually seeing that happen a little bit more and more each week. So thank you to all of you who choose to do that. 
Another great way to support realistic sustainability is by becoming a monthly sustainer on the Anchor site, which you can find on greeningyourlife.org, which again, recently, we've added another person. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If you can't see it, Nick is doing quite the dance. Or just simply leaving a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Anytime that you leave a rating of any kind, it helps us get found in all the search engines. And it's usually your words that talk someone into to listening to us, or at least giving us that chance. So thank you very much for that. And again, remember, we just have to get a little better each day. Little bit, little bit, big bit. I'm Mike. And I'm Nick. And we'll see you next week. Hi, this is Mike, co-host of Realistic Sustainability, the podcast, which you probably already know, but I'm also the author of A Beginner's Guide to Greening Your Life. That was the book that led to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and, well, even this show. It offers tips on promoting your positive footprint while decreasing your carbon footprint. So, if you want to read what started all of this, get A Beginner's Guide to Greening Your Life, available on Amazon, eBay, Etsy, or just visit greeningyourlife.org for more information. Thank you for joining the sustainable movement and promoting a greener future.